And, and it's saying, she saw me. That is what the future sounded like in 1939. For the New York World's Fair that year, Bell Labs engineer Homer Dudley built something no one had ever imagined. A machine that creates human speech. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This season, we'll be looking at what happens when scientists and artists collaborate. This is episode one, EAT, then and now. What I'm beginning to see in the new generation, and many people confirming this, they want to collaborate to change human existence for the better. That's really wonderful because it does mean that these explorations in art and technology are, will become more and more prevalent, not for anyone's gain other than humankind. That's Marcus Weldon. He's the president of Bell Labs and CTO of Nokia. More from him in a bit, but first, let's jump back to 1939. Dudley's device, called the Voter, or Voice Operating Demonstrator, was played in real time by highly trained women dubbed Voderettes. Together, Dudley and the Voderettes blew minds at the World's Fair with their cheeky demo. Helen, will you have the voters say, greetings, everybody? Now will you have him repeat that in a high voice? And now in his best face. They found other fans, too. The U.S. government came knocking on Bell's door when they needed to safeguard wartime communications, and Dudley and his team delivered a game-changing encryption system. But at the time of the World's Fair, the voter was more of a lark. Something they did as a gimmick. Because they could. Fast forward to the fall of 1966. In Manhattan's cavernous 69th Regiment Armory, something unprecedented is taking place. There, on Lexington Avenue, a group of upstart artists, soon to be famous names like Robert Rauschenberg, Robert Whitman, and John Cage, are presenting nine evenings, theater and engineering. This collection of performances in art is a result of a first-ever collaboration with Bell Labs engineers, led by Billy Kluver. In nine evenings of theater engineers, notice we call it the, we called it theater and engineering, not happenings and engineering or happenings. Raised in Sweden, Kluver's early work included installing a TV antenna on top of the Eiffel Tower and developing an underwater camera for Jacques Cousteau. After receiving his Ph.D. in electrical engineering from UC Berkeley, he came to Bell Labs. There, the restlessly curious Kluver stumbled on the New York art scene and drafted Bell colleagues such as Fred Waldauer in a quest to help Rauschenberg and his peers realize their wildest visions. These collaborations started from scratch in January 1966. Billy said, just, said to the artist, just tell the engineers what you want to do. Most of them wanted to fly. <laughs> But that was a little bit beyond the technical capability in those days. That's Julie Martin, an original participant in Nine Evenings. At that point, I was working with Robert Whitman, an artist who was doing one of the, the Nine Evenings performances. Right. So I was, I was helping him sort of do production, looking for films and things like that. And then, of course, when the Nine Evenings started, everybody got involved, and I was 
welding tiny plugs and <laughs> helping with the, helping edit the program and things. Nine Evenings debuted pieces that incorporated video projection, wireless sound transmission, and Doppler sonar. Technologies that were brand new or just leaving the lab. Rauschenberg's piece, Open Score, featured a real-time tennis match with FM radio-equipped rackets. One of them manned by painter Frank Stella. Each time the players hit the ball, a large gong sounded, and the lights in the armory would progressively dim. Jean Tangli's homage to New York featured an enormous Rube Goldbergian self-destroying machine. All told, Nine Evenings brought in over 10,000 visitors. More importantly, it inspired a movement. In the wake of their success, Kluver, Waldauer, Rauschenberg and Whitman formalized this grouping of artists and technologists into something called Experiments in Art and Technology, also known as EAT. Julie Martin was drafted in, and she remains the director of the organization to this day. Billy and Fred, I think in late 67, maybe 68, asked me to join the staff as the uh, editor of the newsletter. I, I knew how to spell. <laughs> and as you know, artists are very bad spellers. <laughs> and so I, I started by editing the newsletter and then stayed on. An independent nonprofit whose membership eventually swelled to 5,000, EAT maintained an unofficial but close relationship with Bell Labs, the country's foremost research facility. Over the years, Bell scientists have been credited with developing, get ready, the transistor, the laser, radio astronomy, charged coupled devices, information theory, the Unix operating system, and several key programming languages. The Internet of Things, much less the Internet itself, would not exist without their work, nor would wireless communications. Bell holds countless patents, eight Nobel Prizes, an Oscar, an Emmy, and a couple of Grammys. But their 1960s collaboration with a ragtag group of artists? That was more of a passion project. Here's Ed Eckert, Bell Labs archivist and a 30-year veteran of the company. Bell Labs was under a parent company, AT&T, and AT&T was a sanctioned monopoly at that time, meaning AT&T cared about its reputation to maintain that monopoly. So to find out that research dollars may be involved with art projects, they were very careful, and there were different opinions about what to do, what to be involved with, what to sponsor. This particular project started out without their blessing and evolved into something that Bell Labs management learned about. And in the end, they did accept it. But I think in the beginning, there were mixed feelings about the type of art that was going on. The Nine Evenings engineers uh, did all the work on their vacation time and overtime. It was not sponsored by Bell Labs, but in the 90s, Billy met John Pierce, who was his boss at Bell Labs. We were interviewing him, and Billy said, why did you let this happen? You saw that these guys were spending a lot of time on something outside, and, there was, and John Pierce said it was so positive, it was such a positive situation that have stopped it would just have been a negative on them. them. So, the, again, individuals at Bell Labs understood the value Today, 50 years after Nine Evenings, Bell Labs has bussed a group of experimental artists and creative thinkers to an EAT salon at their Murray Hill, New Jersey campus. Well, hello everyone, I'm Marcus. Uh, this is my house. <laughs> <laughs> to start the day, Marcus gives some insight behind the reboot of experiments in art and technology. We've been looking at what are the human needs for the future. And we looked at this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy, which is quite well known in psychology, about what humans seek to achieve in life. The lowest levels are mundane things. They're food, water, shelter, 
belonging, security, etc. But as you go higher up, there are aesthetic and cognitive and knowledge-based things and appreciation of things in, in a higher order sense. And so what we began to realize that the role of the digital network of the future was actually to reduce the amount of time spent in those lower order mundane tasks. And so we saw the goal of the future network was to allow more time in this aesthetic cognitive space and we needed to understand what that could look like. And so we decided the best way to do that, of course, was to talk to artists. The artists are here to look for ways that research at Bell Labs might overlap with their work. They represent a variety of disciplines, video and multimedia, dance, large-scale installation, sound design, and music. Bell engineers peruse the artists' exhibits, asking lots of questions. A nervous energy, an air of what if, electrifies the room. Speaking with some of the artists, one discovers a shared spirit with their 60s predecessors, albeit one tempered with the darker tone of the times. Take sound artist Daniel Neumann. In a difference to the 60s, where I think it was more of a utopian climate, technology can solve all of our problems. Now I think it has also created another set of problems that have to do with these large corporate structures and so on. To just be positive about technological development is sort of irresponsible at this point. This techno-skepticism is not lost on Bell Labs' Suzanne Arney. My personal experience of the, the Oculus is beautiful, but I'm alone, and I don't like that. I believe that eventually we will share our 3D experience in a way that we don't feel physically or emotionally isolated from one another, that it will come back to being connected. I remember when my son first started playing on uh, chat rooms and games that were multiplayer role-playing games. My friends were hostile towards our family because we gave our son too much screen time. And yet, in his generation, screen time is connected time. And in a similar way, I hope to see that the Oculus becomes connected, that video continues to connect us while it may also separate us. There's always a balance. One of today's participants hopes to turn virtual reality headsets, like the Oculus, into a force not for isolation, but for self-actualization. Hannes Bend, an artist-in-residence at the Quantum Physics Alleman Lab and Institute of Neuroscience at the University of Oregon, has launched something called The Mindful Project, which is a virtual reality program right now with biofeedback. So we're looking to expand that, include different types of bio-wearable sensors and different algorithmic detection, which feeds it back into like a fun game environment. So it's like a fun, like a gamification in a way of interacting with the own body. On hand for today's salon, Julie Martin marvels at how much has changed since the 60s. I think one of the first things that uh, Robert Rauschenberg asked Billy for, he said, I would like to, like to do a room. If I walk into the room, everything would change. The lights would change, the smell. And of course, you didn't have that technology. I mean, now you do. The challenge is, what's, what is this generation of artists going to do with the technology that pushes, the, in a sense, the art forward? Composer and experiential designer Izan Spivak seems to be channeling the spirit of Rauschenberg. My main offering that I'm here to talk about at EAT is a choir that is fully cross-modal that I compose for and have developed. It's um, a, a multidiscipline choir. Basically, it integrates 
music with vision, with touch, with smell, with taste. I'm working with a neuroscientist and a psychologist to create a cohesive triggering of the same parts of the brain with the audio and all of the other senses. So, for example, um, the note G triggers activity in a part of the brain that also is triggered when you see the colour red. That same part of the brain is triggered with a certain smell and a certain taste and a touch in a certain way. Composers for, for hundreds of years have used different modes, E major, D minor. There's a, there's, it's like a code for different emotions. There's an emotional palette in the scale that's built in that we've kind of instinctively known, but now we have neuroscience to illuminate and confirm that. And it's like, yes, the, the, the E major really does trigger the happy hormones in a way that no other major scale does. And D minor really is the saddest. Martin sees a connection to Nine Evenings in these artists' work. These projects, a lot of them really are about that, about empowering people, using information to empower people and empower solutions. Ed Eckert agrees. We can give you cell phone service at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, but we still need to learn more about the human impact of our technology. These types of art projects are what we can learn from what we did learn from in the past, and then they have impacts beyond our own industry of telecommunications. Weldon sees it as a new mode of connection. The network essentially is an is a extension of your physical self into a digital realm. Our goal is to try and make that network become something that is a sensory addition to you. And I don't just mean audio or video. I mean all your senses get enhanced by connecting to the digital fabric. So that's why we consider it a sixth sense or at least an enabler of a sixth sense. But what's on the other end of that is an artistic or cognitive or creative experience, not just a mundane one. And that's why artists become essential for us to build this the right way because it might be that those elements actually embed themselves in the network. They're not just at the other end. They're part of how you build the network as well. In a round table at the end of the day, Seth Cluett a sound and multimedia artist on the faculty of nearby Stevens Institute of Technology, sounds a rallying cry. We should be trying to figure out a way to uh, turn molecules into a display. Like, we should be trying to figure out uh, ways of, uh, okay, so if we can uh, engage the vocal cords with electro, uh, electric uh, signals from the brain uh, and we can turn fluctuations in air pressure, vibration, compression, and rarefraction into electrical signals into the auditory cortex, and if, uh, if it's possible to send wireless electricity through the air, I should be able to communicate telepathically to you through electrical impulses between our senses. We're solving problems we already know exist, and the role of art in this is to solve problems we haven't figured out even exist yet. I, I like Dudley's whimsical voter would go on to help the Allies win World War II. Kluver and company's moonlighting spawned a 50-years-running partnership between the best and brightest in their respective worlds. And now, as Bell breathes new life into EAT, it feels like a brand new chance to engineer art that pushes us forward. Stay tuned. In the coming weeks, we'll shine a light on new attempts to solve problems, even the ones that don't exist yet. For more information about today's topic, please check our show notes. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smollins, for Audiation, 
with editorial input from Olivia Kosky and additional production from Yasemin Smolens. The voter operator is Doug Slocum. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at iTunes. Today's show was recorded and mixed by Matt Noble at The Loft in Bronxville, New York. He and I also composed the theme music. Additional audio production by Bang Studios. Audiation.